Indigenous Perspectives. Uh, each month we'll have a different guest on to talk about life, language and lore uh, from where they are in the world. And uh, my name is Agar McLodge. I'm a Scottish Gael. Uh, my people hail from a uh, mixture of Ireland and Highland Scotland. And uh, I'm your host. And my guest for this evening is Garanio from the Mohawk Nation. Second. Second. How are we this, this evening? Well, here it's only afternoon. We're a bit yeah. of a time difference. We're five hours, I think. So, so far, so good. It's been a busy day, but I'm it's here. It's absolutely day. roasting here. <laughs> Believe it or not, I'm sweating in Scotland. <laughs> it was quite warm the last time we were there. August when we were August. Uh, oh, it's almost two years. It's hard to believe. I know. You're looking well. Thank you. You too. Nice to see your moving face again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so we're just going to have a blether, as we say, in Scotland for an hour and find out how things have been going for you, what's happening in your community. And I would just like to introduce myself um, as my people would have done. Um, up until not so long ago, we would speak about all of our male ancestors going back. So I'll introduce myself, and with that, I go seven generations back. So it's Misha Agiv, Mach Gamish, Vikish Gamish, Vorich Girimich, Ich Gamish, Ich Burachi, Ich Gamish. And I'm also from the uh, Clannish Cloud, which is the McLeod clan. And so that's me. How would you naturally introduce yourself in, in your own language if you uh, met someone who also spoke Mohawk, but um, you weren't familiar with them? So what we do is we would introduce ourselves and we introduce our, where our name is, our nation, our clan, and where we're from. So I would say, So my name is Garanio. I'm from the Six Nations or Oswego. I'm of the Mohawk Nation Turtle Clan. Ah, and so it, you speak about a mixture of who and where you're from. Mm -hmm. Our nation, when we say Ganyankahaga, it's like we are people of the Flint. So I come from the land of the people of the Flint. So it's very much connected to the land. Mm. Our clan, we say means like the clay that I'm made of. So I come mm. from the turtles is the clay that I'm made of or my clan. Ah, like, the, like the book you gave me, the clay that we we're made of. Mm -hmm. Ah, lovely. Okay. Because in, in Gaelic, we'll say instead of uh, anything that uh, we translate as where are you from? It's more like who are you from? And this is the idea with reciting your what we call the slucht, which is the lineage. So especially uh, before a battle, uh, our, our warriors would recite the slucht in order to uh, bring to bear the spirits of all the generations before them so that they would feel no fear on the uh, the battlefield. Well, that was the theory. I'm sure they did feel fear. But um, having seven generations of warriors behind you um, probably helped quite a bit. What is growing in your garden just now? I'm curious to know. <laughs> well, it's interesting when we talk about this. This is the thing that at this time of year we would be doing. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of indigenous people in this area were hunters and gatherers, but my people are farmers. 
we would live in extended villages for an extended period of time and we would we would farm and so we have three main staples that we call Junhekwan or sometimes anthropologists have sort of bastardized that and made it into this idea of the three sisters except that what it actually means is our sustainers and so our main staple foods that sustained us were corn beans and squash and so wow. i'm growing those things but uh on top of that i've got uh tomatoes tomatillos uh what else do i have growing a lot of herbal like herbs and a lot of basil growing and uh cucumbers i've got a lot of things on the go wow fantastic yeah I, i've just about managed not to kill my potatoes and onions so uh, <laughs> <laughs> i think i'm doing all right at the moment so you were saying that uh, uh ganyan gahaka is the people of the flint mm -hmm. and if someone asked you in english um about your your people how would you describe them? So it's sort of Mohawk 101 in, in a short space of time, which is a ridiculous thing to try and do really, but <laughs> if, you, so, if you had to do it, how, how would you go about it? There's kind of different theories. So I've heard people of the Flint, but I've also heard a story based on the land that we lived in, like our homeland, so to speak, um, our homelands, were in upstate New York, really, near the Finger Lakes region. And mm -hmm. so this is really condensing it down. So uh, for a number of years, we are allies of the British. And during the American Revolution, we basically got burnt out and forced to leave that area. And so Joseph Brandt negotiated another parcel of land for us, which is how we came to be in the community that I live in. And so uh. the land where we lived is filled with what's called a Herkimer diamond. And they sort of look like a, a clear quartz, sometimes a smoky quartz. So they're like a clear mm -hmm. stone or crystal. And so some people say we're at, that's what they were referring to and not actually flint but that hurt so we could be people of the diamond i'm not sure which one's correct i'll take the diamond i'm okay with that <laughs> so we you've got options that i have options that's right so it could be either one of those so our people did hunt and fish up in this particular territory so this was a known territory to my people so we, we did use this this land um so we have a relationship with it but originally our main our main area of settlement was in in upstate new york mm -hmm. i'm with you and the language canyon is that correct yes with, with yeah and, and so then how, how does that with the the fact that Ganyan Kehaka is uh, people of the flint or of the diamond. How does the word uh, Ganyan Keha translate over then for the language? Like what would be the direct translation? Well, I'm, I'm interested to, to hear how the flint concept feeds into the name of the language. 
So is it just the language of the Flint people? Yep, language of, ah. so Ganyakahaga is like the people of the Flint. Sure, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, that's it, yeah. I'm just fe feeling my way through here. I've still got the, uh, is it Aquecon? Is that correct, the, the book that you gave me on the language? And I can't remember which said, one I gave you. <laughs> it says on the, on the cover, speaks of piecing the language together. And, I, and I'm interested in the way that language fits together because in a lot of European languages, of course, we have quite defined concepts for, for little things and the words are all relatively small and, and, and in, a, in a sense spaced out and you can you can sort of um, label minute things very easily and, and, and scientifically through dipping my toe in the water of the, the Mohawk language. Um, it strikes me as slightly more conceptual in the sense that you can express a wider concept in the language. You may express the whole thing at once rather than breaking it up. Is that in any way accurate or have I got the wrong end of the stick? <laughs> no, no, you're correct. So our language is what's called polysynthetic. So there mm -hmm. are 16 grammatical pieces that can be manipulated to change the meaning of a word. So our words are an entire sentence in English. And so you change these little bits and pieces to make the word slightly different. So you have to okay. understand all of those bits and pieces to be able to manipulate them to create words. So it's, Very interesting. Uh, it's complicated. So I, I didn't grow up speaking Mohawk. My great grandparents were the last ones who spoke in my family, and mm -hmm. my great grandfather died before I was born, and my great grandmother died when I was six. So I was lucky enough to hear a bit of it when I was growing up. Yeah. I remember yeah. I have these memories of my grandma, uh, my granny quilting and hearing some language spoken there, and then every once in a while, I have this memory of cooking with her and her like teaching me words. But I don't, other than that, I never really heard it. Yeah. But when I was a kid in, um, like here in Ontario and in, in Canada, we have to learn French as a second language in school. So I grew up hearing French, because that's my dad's first language. And so I always had like this, I always had language around me. And so when I, I continued with my French study and my study of Italian in university. So I, I had a background in learning languages, but I really knew nothing when I started on this journey to learn Ganyakahaga. I could count, I could sing a couple of songs, I knew some animals, and I knew like two or three colors. So I, I really knew nothing. And so, so it sounds exactly like me with Gaelic. <laughs> yeah, and it, it yeah. just, I just, I got the bug and then I was like, I wanna, I wanna learn this. And so I spent three years, I guess, in immersion as, as an adult. Um, mm -hmm. At the time I had no, I was married, I didn't have any kids, so I could spend all of that time doing that study. So, but you have to stay immersed in that. It's really hard because then I went back to school and when I went back to school and I was removed from the community and I was back into an academic setting where I'm, you know, reading all this academia, academic writing and writing stuff myself, I lost quite a bit. I know it's in there, mm -hmm. but the mm -hmm. recall has gotten a lot slower. Aye, 
Aye, yeah, I think that, I think that's part of the course as we uh, get up in years, you know. <laughs> wow, there's that too. There is that too. <laughs> and and so the, the the language then went with your great grandparents' generation. And um, am I right in thinking that there was some uh, colonial interference in that process then? Yeah. So I'm going to tell this story. And I might cry when I tell this story because of things that are transpiring here with respect to mm -hmm. residential mm -hmm. schools. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it always made me a little misty-eyed when I, when I talk about it. So my great-grandfather raised my, my mother. You know, my grandma was a single, a single mother. And she ended up having to go away. She, she was the first person to go to high school in the family and finish high school and then went to like a trade school where she learned how to be a secretary. But the only work for her was in the city. So she would go to Toronto and work in Toronto during the, the week and then be home on the weekends. And so my mom stayed wow. with her grandparents. So her grandparents were very much a part of her life. And so when my mom went to school and then she got married and she was pregnant he was he was waiting for me to get here and he called me the egg and he had plans for us when the egg was born and and so I always feel like he and I had this connection before I was even born but he passed away two months before I was born and so I very much think that he's around me all the time mm -hmm. because he's I have this bug I have this want to learn and so when he was at the what we call the mush hole, but uh, the proper name was the Mohawk Institute, and that's the residential school about 15 minutes from here, from our Oh, community. yeah. And many, yeah. many, many of the children, or now the elders in this community, were at the school. So mm -hmm. my great-grandfather was one, as was my grandmother. And so when he was there, he was sent with uh, two of his brothers, and they came from a farming family. And so he... He was, his job was uh, to be in the fields and the school was an industrial school. So it was a working farm where they sold produce and, and, and livestock, etc. And so my mom said to him one time, she said, Grandpa, how come you still speak Mohawk, but Uncle George and Uncle Cecil don't? And he said, they can't. And she said, well, what do you mean they can't? Because Uncle George was older than him and Uncle Cecil was younger than him. And he said, because of what happened to them. And so my, my great aunt then told me the story about how she asked him. And he said that he didn't want to forget. And so because he was in the cornfields by himself, that he talked to the corn so that he wouldn't forget how to speak his language. And so he was the only one of the three of them that went that continued to speak. And he married my great grandmother and chose her because she could speak Mohawk. Nyawen. Thank you very much for hearing that. I feel privileged to have heard that story. And I remember you telling me that story two years ago. I came to Dunad uh, with myself and my family. I was very moved by it then, and it's very, very moving to hear it. And am I right in thinking that the, the residential school has, has now been repurposed as... Now, tell me a little bit about how it's been repurposed. Sure. So 
the residential school here located next to my community didn't close until the 70s and I think it was 1972 and the very last children that were at the school the very last children to be picked up were my cousins mm -hmm. and so I was born in the 70s so it wasn't that long ago it could no. have been me no. who was in that school yeah. and so um you know the community very much wanted it to stay fresh in the minds of the people because it's important that people know that history so many residential schools uh, across canada closed and the schools became dilapidated um, fallen down but the one here did not they struggled with what little money they had to, to keep it going and to keep keep it up, like the upkeep of the buildings. But it now has become the Woodland Cultural Center. And the Woodland yeah. Cultural Center is working very hard on a Save the Evidence campaign. Um, they've had to raise money to try and like the building was full of asbestos. So it needed to have like the environmental cleanup, et cetera, et cetera. The, it was, uh, the heating system was a boiler and the boiler system was very old. And um, I used to have my office in there and there were days where the boiler wasn't working and the building was freezing. So they needed to uh, to get that fixed as well. So the, um, yeah. the idea is is then to, to make sure that the, the, the school is still, ex the integrity of the structure still exists, can be repurposed mm -hmm. and, and, and used for something positive but it yes. can be maintained as a monument to, to what your people went through. Yes. So the Woodland Cultural Center uh, worked at, you know, writing proposals and uh, fundraising through their Save the Evidence campaign to try and um, get the funding to be able to restore the building. And I hear it's, I mean, they're not completely finished, but I hear that things are moving along quite well. Uh, the building itself has been closed for I'm gonna say around three years now, as they've been doing the, the restoration. Um, mm -hmm. But I look forward to it to it being finished. They also yeah. have now built a museum that kind of takes you through the history of our people, like right up until present day. And so mm -hmm. the residential school is part of the museum as well. But the plan, as I understand, is to have the residential school be sort of like a living museum. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. It's it's Absolutely. interesting too because uh, when I was working through to, with the school board, not on the reserve but off the reserve, and our office was located in the building, and I was looking for some resources, and I contacted CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting Company, sort of like BBC, looking for some resources on some programming that they had done, and I got to this archivist, and we were going through and I said, okay, well, this is my shipping address. And she stopped and she said, 184 Mohawk Street, Brantford. And I said, yep, that's the address. And she said, can I ask you a question? And I said, yep. And she said, is that the mush hole? And I said, yeah, it is. And she said, I was there for six years. And I, we had this like long silence in our conversation and she said, what is it now? And so I explained to her, and she's from a community uh, way up like near James Bay, which yeah. is quite far north from us. Mm -hmm. And 
she was so happy to hear that it was a cultural center and that it wasn't torn down and that people were still using it and trying to teach people about the things that transpired in the school. And she, she had been removed from an area further north and, and ended up coming to, to that school. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just children who were taken from places near here. They were mm -hmm. taken from places afar as well. The school operated for something around 150 years, is that correct? 20s, 1830s till 1970s. So quite some time. And so during this period, then, the, this institution was, it was essentially the, the, the purpose of the thing to de-ethnicize people, to remove their sense yes. of themselves, their connection to their land, their responsibility to their people and customs. Yes. So if you look at, see, this is, this is a huge <laughs> subject because it doesn't, it, yeah. it actually uh, really looks at, Canada, but also Britain, because prior to uh, 1982, when Canada rep repatriated the Constitution, we were still under British rule. Now we're part of the Commonwealth, but before, yeah. Britain was very much a part of what we were doing and what was happening here in Canada. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, well, I can so, believe that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's still a constitutional monarchy in that the representative of the crown is the governor general and the governor general is like the figurehead, right? So the governor general representing the queen now has to sign off on, you know, laws. But before that, it was a bit different. So Canada became Canada in 1867. And so if you look at some of the very big very first sessional papers of the Dominion of Canada, it talks about residential schools and the purpose of it. And in fact, there are some quotes uh, from Sir John A. Macdonald, who was the first prime minister of Canada and talking about how we were savages and how they, we needed to be taken away so that they could take the Indian out of the child. Those are documented I things. And you see that the shameful thing for me as a Scottish Gael is that just by you mentioning his name, albeit it's an anglicised form, but uh, I can hear the echo of my people in there because the chances are that some generation before he wouldn't have been referred to as MacDonald, he would be referred to as Donalach. So he's, he's one of ours. So that, that this, is the, this is the extremely complicated thing about this mm -hmm. history is that the, the British colonial machine started out and and perfected its techniques on the Celtic peoples of, of, of these isles. But then some of our people became so colonised that they went out with the British and visited even worse than yourselves. And it's very, very difficult for us to get our heads around, but we, we need to, you know, it's got to be done. Mm -hmm. It's It's true. And, you know, as I'm learning and reading more about the history of your people as well, right? Mm -hmm. I'm able to draw these connections in the things that the very same people did to, to both our peoples. It's not that different. It's just they did it and then they said, oh, hey, yeah, this works and let's go over here and we'll do the same thing. Yeah, there are sources in, in, in fact which speak about um, the idea that they were practicing on us. Mm -hmm. 
Um, I'm still to look into it as far as I probably need to, you know, but I, I recall reading not that long ago that it's a, a quote that was more or less that, that the techniques that were used to, to, to break the, the connection between the Gaelic peoples and their language and lifeways um, would, would, would suit very well to doing likewise on the other side of the Atlantic. And I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along those lines. And it's gonna, I'm going to have to get my head right back into that research. Mm -hmm. And so here in the schools, these were not residential schools. They were just state-run schools. There, there were many, many things visited upon the kids to disassociate themselves, used by, by the teachers to disassociate the children from their language and culture. Um, and one of these things was that um, there, there was a, a thing called the mechachrochi, which was the hanging stick, which was placed around the neck of each child that was caught speaking Gaelic. And then every time um, another child was heard speaking it, the, the metricrochy was passed on and put round the, the neck of the next child. Um, and then at the end of the day, all the children were lined up and, and thrashed and they, they washed out their mouths with soap and um, they were beaten with meter sticks. They were just punched around the head until they went deaf. They had human skulls hung around their necks to associate their language with, with death and with poverty. But but there's a very important distinction that needs to be made though, is that we did not have residential schools. So we really just can't relate to that. And I'm 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 in a rabbit hole of, of learning to try and get my head around what that that level of human cruelty even even means. And I'm very privileged that you're willing to speak about that with me. Well I can certainly tell you from my perspective and I don't think that anyone would disagree with me, um, you know, looking at our history and the way that, so the Mohawk Nation is part of a greater Haudenosaunee or Haudenosaunee Confederacy. And there are five mm -hmm. and then now six nations that are part of that. And so when that Confederacy was formed, the structure of that is based on the clan system. And it's very much based on the family. So we have within our nations, we have clans. So the Mohawk Nation has nine, nine clans. We have three turtle clan, three bear clan, and three wolf clan. And so each of those clans represent or can stand alone and conduct their own business. Then the mm -hmm. three of each of those families can come together as the wolf clan, the bear clan, and the turtle clan and come together to make decisions. And then the whole nation can then come together to make decisions. And so by removing our children, it broke down our family. It meant that children, that transmission of knowledge about how our system works, that transmission of language about how our system, like how our language works and because our language is very much connected to our worldview, our belief and value system. And so we had this, this disconnect and it really happened over two, maybe three generations. And so we still feel that today. You know, I say, I've always grown up knowing that I was Gnankahaga. I didn't grow up knowing about the traditions and culture as much. I, I grew up knowing about the history because I came from a family who was very much involved politically. Uh, my, my 
parents both uh, took history as part of their undergrad courses and so uh, and native studies and so I knew the history but I didn't know about the culture and I didn't know about the language and so you know as I grew up I spent a lot of time with my grandmother and my grandmother's sisters and so and 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 their friends my sister used to tease me don't you have any friends who are under 65 and i said no because they're the ones who have the most interesting stories well that sounds I was like that, me now <laughs> i was i was that kid i was always with the old people and yeah. so i had a different perspective and so when i was in my early 20s i said you know what i need to learn this i need to learn how to speak Mohawk and our uh, adult immersion program, I think had about three or four years under its belt. And so I said, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up going to, I didn't live on the reserve. I went to a Catholic school. Um, you know, I was always, uh, the kid who was, because I had learned about Christianity. I had, you know, my mom was all about giving us experiences. So she's like, oh, we'll go to this church and see what they have to say. Oh, we'll go over here and we'll see what they have to say. And what do you think about this? And so I was always questioning things. And I was, the priests and nuns would come into the school and I would be like, well, why are you saying that when your Bible says this and you're supposed to be like this? And they would like get all like, when I would ask those questions. You know, and I remember, you know, and I would be able to, I, I, that's just me, right? I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you saying this? So I always grew up feeling like I didn't fit in and feeling like there was something missing. And I said, you know, and I'm going to cry when I say this, because every, every single time these words come out of my mouth, it makes me want to cry. I said, I never yeah. actually felt like a whole person until I started to learn our language. I always felt like there was something missing for me. Mm. And I am so grateful that I came to this world at a time where I could still hear that. And that kind of gave me that want or desire to learn about those things. And so I've been actively learning since I was in my early 20s. And I have so much more to learn, but it's changed everything about me from a place that it's, I didn't know existed. I, I once said that it when learning Gaelic for me, and I did exactly the same thing as you. It, my great grandfather was the last speaker generations that either had it beaten or intimidated out of them. If you if you were heard speaking Gaelic in public, you were absolutely looked down upon. You were ridiculed. You, you were made fun of. And um, he, he used to say, oh, it was infradig to be overheard speaking the language. It wasn't socially acceptable. You were never going to go anywhere. You were a peasant. You were meaningless. You were nothing. Um, but somehow he passed this fire on to my grandmother, who then it skipped a generation because she was a minister's wife and just incredibly busy and got caught up in life. And then she passed the fire to me. And she quite literally entrusted me with the job of bringing the language back. 
and it was my only grandmother, and it was the only person who ever gave me a name. She gave me the McLeod name and insisted it was put into my name. My parents had no interest in culture whatsoever. Um, and she had a few phrases that she passed on as well. So everything that you're saying, despite the fact that we are at different points uh, on the globe and you know that our people have uh, at times in the past had very different relationships to, to yours and mine, um, there is a great amount that resonates very strongly with me. And when you were saying that it, it just changed your whole perception of yourself, I felt that when I, I learned Gaelic, even saying learning Gaelic is silly to me. I don't feel like I learned it at all. I feel like there was a huge missing chunk of of the, the operation of my brain and my soul and my heart. There were holes in it. And, and I filled those holes with, well, let's just not even go there, with drinking, goodness knows what. And I'm only just getting over my struggles in my early 40s due to, due to my lack of identity that should have come to me. And so when you're talking about changing your whole perception of who you are as a person, I, I know that when I speak my language to my children, I'm giving them the greatest gift that I could ever give them because they will never have to suffer the dislocation that I did. I wonder if that's meaningful to you too. It's to be able to bridge the gap and even if you have to sacrifice yourself to an extent just to make sure that you bridge that gap, very little that um, can really touch it, I think. <laughs> mm. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, we've been building the language programs in this community since the early 80s. And I'm very lucky that my mom has been around language and involved in language stuff for a long time. So she, uh, at the time, was working as the second language consultant for the on-reserve school board. And so she was very much involved in the establishment of our very first immersion school here. And I remember the stories around the fire. Yeah. We were very grateful to hear the story of the, the school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but we now have other immersion schools as well. Um, so I, I'm lucky that I had her kind of like paving the way a little bit. And she said, I was too old to take that journey because she would have been in her 40s already. And she said it was it was too late. Like, I didn't have enough brain capacity at that point to be able to do it. And I had three little kids and blah, blah, blah. So when I said, hey, I want to do this, she's the one who encouraged me. I said, you know what, though? Like, how am I going to live? How am I, I'm not going to be able to work. I got a car payment. I got mortgage payment, I have insurance, how am I going to feed myself? And it's interesting because my mom's an only child. And so my parents said, we'll help you. And my grandma said, we'll help you, her and my grandpa. And my great aunt said, we'll help you. And so I didn't, I didn't have to worry. I knew that they were there to help me. And so my whole family was rooting for me and supporting me to be able to do that. And now my children, five kids, so the two oldest ones, they had already started, started school in an English school program. So they continued mm -hmm. in the English school program. But my next two, um, we started, uh, bunch of parents got together and were like, hey, we need to have a school that, you know, more closely aligns to our traditional way of life, our traditional teachings. And so we have an immersion Waldorf school. 
Ah, uh, yes. And is, is that the Everlasting Tree School? That is the Everlasting Tree School. Oh, it looks fantastic. Yes. <laughs> yes. I want to go so, back in time and go to an Everlasting Tree School. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing. And literally the first three or four years, we were in yurts. And, you know, our winter here is not, it's not quite as cold as the Scottish winter, but it's, it's, you know, we get times where we have minus 40 wind chill that's Celsius, not well, Fahrenheit. Well, uh, so these it, days, it, I, it I, 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 th I think actually you're, you're edging it these days because we've still got the Gulf Stream. Uh, I think the, <laughs> the, the winter over there is probably edging us. You know, we, we'd be lucky if we get minus 15. So, yeah, got the edge it, in that one. Yeah. And we started in here. <laughs> And so we've just built the program as we've gone along. We've added a year every year. And so now, you know, we've gotten up to grade eight. And uh, my my youngest one, she's seven now. So she's just starting into the grades. So this is her first year in sort of like mm -hmm. grade one. Waldorf does things a little bit different. Um, uh -huh. It's based on your, you know, emotional, spiritual, physical intellectual development rather than yeah. just based on your age and so yep. um it's interesting but now with covid trying to have that sort of there's there's not generally technology in the school waldorf school uh -huh. programs are based on you know natural systems and natural ways of doing things and very much about your spirit and your emotions and so having mm. this um year of online schooling has been crazy but um i can't say that i haven't enjoyed it because i've been able to be with her all the time so i really have enjoyed ah, that this part. Is true. so and and, 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 and is that know, she's, it's, she's funny that, that's her, that's her little pal uh, gaia genos yeah she, oh, and, and she said uh, to make sure that i said hello to you <laughs> uh and i'll i'll pass that on to the kids because they'll be yes. really pleased to to hear from her I can see that this this kind of schooling is here. We've we've got Gaelic immersion, but it, it's just a translation of of the English curriculum. Um, and while it's it's been very positive in many ways, you know, just bringing up awareness of the language and and people are, are so sympathetic to the place of the language in Scottish society now in a way they weren't even 10, 20 years ago. It doesn't teach any of our life ways. It doesn't teach our outlook. Um, and 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 so that that's definitely a concern for 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 some of us going forward. And I just wanted to ask you in in terms of the way that the, the school operates, the Everlasting Tree School, um, the concept that I asked you asked you about earlier on, on Quehon Wemeha. Is that is that okay? Yeah, oh, good. It. It's it's stayed in there. It is. <laughs> Um, and and I, I was very interested in that because, um, I mean, you can explain um, what kind of uh, an English, gosh, I'm thinking in Gaelic now, trying to say something in English. You can obviously say what English you would put on that, or who you would translate it into English, sorry. Um, but it was interesting to me because we have the concepts of duochas and duochas. And duochas is an inherited, uh, in, an intangible heritage. So everything that your ancestors would passed down about themselves through story and song and proverbs and, and the, the history of the people amongst themselves. And then Duchas was the, the right to, to exist on the land from, from where your people sprang. And 
what I was interested in about the concept I mentioned a second ago was that it was, uh, and you can, of course, explain it much better, but the way that your people exist in the world, but please fix that. I've, I've mashed it up. But <laughs> I'm just thinking about how that would actually be translated. And the way that I think about it is sort of like our way of knowing being doing, I guess. Um, so Onkwahunwe is like, Onkwahunwe is like the original people. And mm. Neha is sort of, geez, I've never thought about what, or heard someone really pick apart Neha. But that's what I- well, I, don't want, I don't want to be responsible for picking like, it apart. <laughs> that, no, no, I mean, I've just never, it's not one- Etymologically, sure. But yeah. I've not really asked anybody what that neha means. Ah. But, it, but, it, but it means like our way that we do things, our mm. way of being, I guess. Mm. Mm. So it's and, much and, like and, you were talking about. And it, it's it's um, very, very interesting to me that there is a, a defined, well, I'm saying defined, that's wrong, that's a very English language concept, but there is a recognised uh, amongst your people's sense of how uh, the Mohawk people do things, how they like things done and how they see the world. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's that's sort of the interesting part about each of our independent nations, because we can operate as a collective of the Rodnashoni or the people of the Longhouse or mm -hmm. the Confederacy, or we can operate as independent nations. And our independent nations do things very differently. The interesting part is that as the Confederacy was being formed, I like to think that um, the peacemaker and Ayan Wata, who really brought together our nations, recognized our uniqueness and recognized that when we have these different perspectives from everyone, it makes us richer. And so, um, you know, one of the things we, we talk about, and I've heard this talked about by some of my teachers, is the concept of dogonske, and that's like your truth. So as individuals, we have that dogonske, we have our own truth, but we use our own truth to help bring that perspective to our clan or our nation. Mm. And so when we decide things, we mm. use consensus. We have to come to what's called Scott Nikmura, come to one mind about things. And so we have yeah. to learn to listen and communicate to be able to come to that one mind, that consensus about things. And so and that's, you, part, that's an example of part of like Ongohoi Neha. That's how we do things. That's, that's uh, yeah, that's very interesting. And I just wondered, following on from that, um, we're, we're almost running out of time. I knew it would fly in. That's what I was saying earlier. <laughs> <laughs> um, what were we worrying I'm, about? Oh, I, I know, but it's just the first program. You're, you're thinking, how's it going to go? Are we going to have technical hitches? And hey, we had a technical hitch, but we got, we got past it. We got through it. Um, I just wonder in, in terms of, um, I, I speak often um, about what I call the elephant in the room and um, in Gaelic societies, 
uh, now, and I wonder whether there's uh, this resonates with you at all uh, as a Mohawk, that people talk often about promoting our language, promoting our culture, but they they forget to protect us from English. You know, th there needs to be places where um, I would imagine as a Mohawk, you feel that you need to just be able to exist without the Anglo-American English-speaking world invading your space, your spiritual space. And, and I certainly feel as a Gale that I have to fight extremely hard all the time to compartmentalize. And it's not that we don't listen to rock and roll, it's not that we don't watch movies, whatever, you know, but I feel that we have to you know, work very hard to compartmentalize our time and our a way of looking at things in our language and and to protect it, to build a bubble in order that, that it can exist on its own terms. Does that resonate at all with yourself? Yeah, that makes sense. And I and that was part of, you know, the the undoing of my proficiency in the language because I didn't have that anymore. So I finished when I finished the immersion program, I was finishing my masters. And then mm -hmm. I started my PhD, which took me two and a half hours away from home, which took me out of um, really from my territory to another territory, another Mohawk community. And I was in the middle in Anishinaabe territory. And so I there weren't really any speakers. There was no one for me to talk to. And so it was the unraveling of my proficiency, the start of it anyways, and then having to go back to work in a system where there wasn't anyone to talk to. And so, yeah. you know, one of the things that as graduates of our adult, um, adult immersion program have said is we need more spaces where our language community can gather so that we can continue to use the language because if you don't use it it just sort of like filters away it no longer is in the forefront of your your mind and i and i still struggle with that you know i uh was visiting a friend the other day and he was speaking mohawk to me and i know exactly what he's saying because it's easier to understand it than it is to get it out and so i was like answering in english and then he got frustrated he's like i came over here to practice you need to be and i was like oh, oh goodness oh goodness okay here we go so yeah um, it's hard it's work being yourself sometimes <laughs> it is it is so um absolutely we need to have those those spaces we need to have those places where you know you can gather and we're fortunate here because we have our longhouse uh where oh, we conduct yeah. our ceremonies and the majority of the people who attend longhouse uh, are from families of people who have been a part of our adult immersion program you know and i remember the very first time i attended and, and at this time of year always makes me think about it too because it was strawberries and which is coming up very soon for us and i sat there bawling through the ceremony and it was because i understood everything that was being said that had never happened to me before and i it was like the most powerful and moving experience that i had ever had and i felt this like 
sense of joy and like pride because I was, I just, I knew what was happening. I knew what was being said. It wasn't me just going through the motions of sitting there and being a part and understanding like why that's important. You know, why are we giving yeah. things to the bears? But I actually understood. And, yeah. you know, I. That so is, is what, it is, it is what um, John Lon Campbell, one of our native scholars um, called the carrying stream of indigenous culture. And and people people can lose touch with the stream, but the stream of our indigenous culture and the wisdom of our elders never ceases to exist and is sustained by the land. And if we are willing to clear the, the mud from our eyes, you know, and, and find it again and touch that stream, then we can be reunited with the, 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 the wisdom of, of you know, a, a traditions that go back thousands of years. When you think about it, you know, or people would have been speaking uh, and celebrating and looking at the world in uh, very, very, very similar ways a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. So it's still there. It's just uh, in this day and age with uh, globalization being the way it is and all these forces that we have to contend with, it, it, the struggle is very profound, I believe. You know, I, I think this brings up another thought and point, you know, when I was working on my PhD, I had a supervisor because they always connect you with someone who's going to bring you along the process. Mm. And I, I started it. And when it got time to look at my proposal and we had to defend it, the way that I wrote it, we had this discussion and he said, you know, are you drawing a rigid boundary between indigenous knowledges? And I was like, that's a weird question. Mm. Yeah, I am. And he says, well, I don't think we can work together. I said, how can you, how can you not draw a rigid boundary? I said, you're Cree from the West. You have words that don't exist in my language because the things that you are connected to and the land that you're connected to isn't the same as mine. And I have words that don't exist for you how can you lump us all in together? Cause we're not, we have very similar ways of viewing the world. I will give you that. I, we have very similar ways of, of thinking, but our relationship to the land and to our own people is very different from one another. And so I, I ended up having to find a new supervisor cause I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna take that perspective. It didn't fit with my way of thinking. And so, you know, we have to be, I'm always saying to people, we're similar, but we're different. Mm. And we're different because, you know, there, we have different relationships to the land that we live in. And so there are a lot of things that we, I mean, even, even you know, as I've been in your territory and learned about things, I say, oh, well, we do that too, or we think that too, or, you know, we have that similar concept and here's how it works for us. So we do have those similarities, but mm -hmm. we're also very different. Mm -hmm. That's it. Well, it, 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 both, both of these things are important. And, and there's a tendency at the moment, uh, quite often in, in urban modern society, to uh, break down differences that are perfectly natural and normal. And it's what makes life beautiful because that's what provides the variation. 
Um, I just wanted to say that um, if anybody wants to donate to Dorlach, they can do, and anything that's donated will split 50-50 with a cause of your choice, Karanio. Mm. So if there's a cause that you would like us to donate to, then we can make that happen. Mm -hmm. so you don't need to make that decision now. Just drop me a line and okay. we'll see how we go on. I really, really appreciate you coming on and chatting. Yes, it's great. We haven't had an opportunity really. to chat in some time. I, I know, I know. It's, it, it just made me realise, actually, when I was thinking about the fact that we'd be on a video call, I just suddenly thought, oh, wait a minute, in, in the run-up to you coming over to see us here, I think we were on a video call three or four times, and then we've not <laughs> managed to get on one since. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, and, and, and I hope that uh, myself and, and kids can, can come and visit yourselves at some stage. For in the sure. future, uh, depending sure. on how everything goes. Well, I know, I know, my mom's already planning a trip again. She's she's waiting. Brilliant, brilliant. Oh, it'd be lovely to see her again. Well, I shall let you go and get on about your business. You're a busy woman. I look forward to hearing <laughs> what you what you get up to. All right. All right. Well, thank you thank so much. You again. Thank you, everyone yeah. who's tuned in and been great. Well, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Right, Karania. So that was Karanil from the, the Mohawk Nation. Fantastic chat. Terrific eye-opener. I hope you all enjoyed it very much. Many thanks to Karanil. And many thanks as well to the team at Independence Live. If you're watching Independence Live for the first time, do please uh, subscribe on the YouTube channel. Uh, we'll have another chat uh, with another friend from somewhere on planet Earth. Uh, in roughly a month's time. Uh, we haven't worked out who that is yet, but there are uh, a few friends who are really keen to come and uh, have a blather with us. So as I say, I hope you enjoyed that and we'll, we'll see you for another twos again in the near future.